Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In some of my previous episodes, I have mentioned in passing Hermes and Hermeticism, as these are topics that often pop up in various places, and that have played an important role in the history of religion and philosophy. But as important as they are, not too many people know what these words actually denote. You may think of Hermeticism as something esoteric, connected to the occult sciences and to things like magic, for example, or maybe you very rightfully associate the name Hermes with the Greek god who goes by that name. Hermeticism as a topic that has interested philosophers, mystics, and scholars throughout the centuries, from Proclus to Muslim philosophers like Ibn Sabain and the Ikhwan al-Safa, to Marsilio Ficino and that one spiritual aunt who everyone in the family thinks is kind of weird. But how much has Hermeticism actually influenced the history of religion? Turns out quite a lot, actually, which gives me good reason to dedicate a full episode to discussing this very fascinating subject. So, what is Hermeticism? 
Hermeticism is, first and foremost, a mystical, called religious and philosophical movement connected to an ancient collection of writings and their supposed author, Hermes Trismegistus. It is a tradition that dates back primarily to late antiquity in a Greco-Egyptian environment, but that has had a major influence on various different cultures, religions, and esoteric communities throughout history since then. The central figure of this general trend, Hermes, is an elusive figure, one to whom a number of different legends and mythical stories are attributed. But what we can be sure about is that Hermes Trismegistus in this particular manifestation and the movement and literature we usually refer to as Hermetic originates in Egypt during the time of Hellenistic and Roman occupation. We're talking roughly between the conquest of Alexander the Great in the late 4th century BC to the 4th century CE, or AD, depending on what word you want to use. This was an environment where the Hellenistic culture, which had origins in Greece, um, mingled and interacted with the native Egyptian culture, and nowhere was this more uh, visible, perhaps, than in the sphere of religion. While the native Egyptians themselves were sometimes very hostile to religious and cultural syncretism, the influence of Greek language, philosophy, and religion became an inescapable reality. The Hellenistic leaders themselves often chose to syncretize their own religious background with the cults of Egypt, and this created some very interesting developments. In this process, many gods from the Greek context were merged with Egyptian deities. Gods who shared attributes or functions could be seen as the same god, but with different names. And they were, as I just said, sometimes also merged together. And one such synthesis was made between the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian Toth. Toth was one of the most popular deities in the Egyptian pantheon. He was associated with the ibis bird and is indeed usually depicted with an ibis's head. Toth served many different functions. He was the god of writing, the scribe and the messenger of the gods. He was the god of wisdom, one who invented the art of writing and the hieroglyphs, composer of sacred literature like the Book of the Dead, and the source of all occult and esoteric knowledge. The god Hermes of the Greek pantheon served a quite similar role, and the two quickly started to be associated with each other, eventually resulting in the merged character or god of Hermes Trismegistus. Trismegistus meaning thrice great and probably originates from an epithet for Toth. This character became associated with many different legends and traditions. There are many different accounts about Hermes and who he was, but many of them considered him to have been human at some point, or at least to have lived among humans and in very ancient times. This human Hermes is thought to have reached a kind of illumination and ascended to the world of the divine. Certainly a divine figure at the very least, Hermes was considered to have been the originator of many religious and philosophical traditions. Some claimed he was the teacher of Moses, or that of Pythagoras, and that his wisdom has been carried down in different lines through great figures, like Plato, for example. The Jewish historian Artapanus of Alexandria, who lived in the 2nd century BC, even identified Hermes with Moses outright. These various legends can be complicated and sometimes seem contradictory. The Toth of Egyptian religion was clearly a distant and all-knowing, abstract god, while the Hermes of Greece had a more human background, which probably resulted in these varying accounts. 
Some chroniclers, including the Egyptian priest Manetho, even consider that to have been multiple Hermeses. It all gets very confusing, and we're not going to dwell on the mythological character and legends around the figure of Hermes himself. That will have to be saved for a later episode. But what is important, or, or what is relevant to know at this point, is that sometime in antiquity, there appeared many different writings, um, a corpus of writings that was attributed to the figure of Hermes, considered to have been written by this figure. Hermes, often considered to have been the originator of philosophy, alchemy, magic, and astrology, appears as author of a huge corpus of texts. As a general term, the wider collection of texts attributed to him is known as the Hermetica. And when we talk about the Hermetic texts, they are often divided into two general categories, the Technical Hermetica and the Philosophical Hermetica. The former, the technical hermetica, consists of the majority of the texts, dealing with such topics as magic, astrology, divination, alchemy, and other occult sciences, while the latter, the philosophical hermetica, being more speculative and philosophical in nature, thus having a rather different approach. It is important to remember, however, that when we divide the hermetic literature into these general categories of technical and philosophical, we are kind of creating or anachronistically dividing the literature into categories that the ancients or people of antiquity themselves probably wouldn't have conceived. The early hermetists or readers of this literature probably wouldn't have divided the literature into these wider categories. But I think these categorizations can still be useful today. It helps us navigate through a complex world of ancient literature. As mentioned, the technical Hermetica make up the bulk of the material, because indeed Hermes was primarily associated or seen as the father or originator of occult sciences like magic and especially astrology. Just like Toth was always seen in earlier Egyptian religion, Hermes was the arch-esotericist, the source of wisdom and hidden knowledge. Indeed, in the Greek magical papyri, it is said about Hermes that he knows, quote, all that is hidden under the heavenly vault and beneath the earth. This very strong association of Hermes with the occult survived for long after the texts were supposedly written, far into the Islamic period and into uh, Renaissance Europe and beyond. Now, even though the Hermetists of antiquity probably conceived of all of these texts as actually being written by the sage or god or whatever you want to call him, Hermes Trismegistus, scholars today, of course, have a rather different perspective on it since Hermes, let's face it, is most likely a mythical figure. Thus, the dating of these texts is an often debated and discussed matter, but the usual dating is that the larger corpus was composed from around a century or two BC to around 300 or 400 AD. The Technical Hermetica is often considered to be the oldest, at least certain parts of it, perhaps dating to periods before the Common Era, a few centuries before uh, so BC, whereas the Philosophical Hermetica is usually considered to be uh, later compositions, likely in the 2nd to 3rd centuries AD. The most famous of the philosophical writings, the so-called Corpus Hermeticum, was most likely composed in 2nd century Alexandria, a melting pot of intellectual, religious, and cultural activity. It was the zenith of Hellenistic and Roman rule in Egypt, and the Corpus Hermeticum, among other texts, most likely emerges in this very syncretistic environment. 
While it is somewhat anachronistic to divide the literature into the technical and philosophical categories, it does seem that the philosophical writings were often viewed as distinct and as forming a kind of unified whole even to people of antiquity. References to the Philosophical Hermetica often group together many of these texts as representing some kind of uh, unified movement, and we can thus assume that much of this literature is the result of a somewhat coherent group or general movement that existed in antiquity, probably in or around Alexandria in Egypt. The Corpus Hermeticum is perhaps the most prominent and famous production of these hermetists. It consists of 18 separate treatises talking about the individual soul and its potential ascent to the world of the divine nous, or mind or intellect, through uh, what's known as gnosis. But the text that reaches does so through several filters. The collection of the Corpus in particular was a compilation of Byzantine Christian editors in the Middle Ages. The earliest attestation we have of the corpus is in the writings of Michael Psellus in the 11th century. The Christian editors of these texts most likely did some editing, leaving out sections of texts that were too pagan in nature and leaving in only those acceptable to perceived Christian orthodoxy. In other words, the philosophical hermetica that does survive, like the corpus hermeticum for example, probably does so because of these later compilations and the fact that they were deemed acceptable in contrast to other parts of the literature that is sadly lost to time. But the hermetica that does survive is still very much significant, despite the fact that they were edited by later scholars. The text paints a lively picture of the cosmos and its relationship to God, and it probably functioned primarily as an aid in spiritual development for individuals who were initiated into the hermetic secrets. Aside from the most famous Corpus Hermeticum, the other philosophical Hermetica that survives include the Latin Asclepius, known originally in Greek as the Perfect Discourse. There is also the definitions of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius, sometimes known as the Armenian definitions due to its surviving only an Armenian manuscript. There is also the compilations and excerpts of Stobaeus of the 5th century, called the Stobaean Excerpts as well as a very significant section found in Nag Hammadi, including the fascinating discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead. Even though these texts are different in some respects and can seemingly even contradict themselves in some places, we'll return to this later, they all seem to be the production of the same hermetic quote-unquote movement of intellectual-slash-religious current in late antiquity. Indeed, the famous late Platonist philosopher Iamblichus speaks about a quote, way of Hermes, indicating a certain path that was associated with these hermetic texts. But what do these texts actually say? As already mentioned, the texts and philosophy of the philosophical Hermetica were probably part of uh, an initiatory group of spiritual aspirants, although there are certain scholars today that um, question this idea and are skeptical towards it due to a lack of evidence, which is understandable. There are different opinions about whether or not this is true. Now, most of these texts, including indeed the Corpus Hermeticum, take the form of you could call it teaching sessions, so one-on-one -on -one sessions where a teacher discloses knowledge to a student, the teacher in most cases being Hermes himself, while the student is one of the other recurring characters of the Hermetica, characters like Asclepius and Tat. But on some occasions this trend is broken. A prominent example is in the very first treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum, known as the Poemandres, 
in which Hermes is the one being taught by this other character called Poimandres, which the treatise is named after, and this character Poimandres is identified in the text as the nous, the divine nous. Now nous is a word that is basically impossible to translate, but it is usually rendered as the intellect or as the divine mind. Already we get a glimpse into the exalted and complex religious philosophical worlds of the Hermetica, or the philosophical Hermetica to be exact. The texts were, again, probably used as spiritual aid for people who were initiated into this hermetic group, although again some scholars will, will doubt this idea, and these initiates were probably being led by a spiritual guide, much like in the text themselves. It seems that if there was this initiatory hermetic group, the teacher-student relationship seems to have played a very important role, which is then reflected in the text themselves. The teacher would have been a very important factor in the spiritual ascent of the student towards the divine world. This would have been central to the quote-unquote way of Hermes that people like Iamblichus spoke of. The metaphysics and cosmology that the text present is a colorful one. At its center is God, who is one and the creator of all things. God is sometimes called the Father in the text, and the general attitude towards God is significantly more devotional and personal than, for example, in the later Neoplatonic writings of Plotinus. Aside from God, the Hermetists then divide reality into various spheres. There's God, again, there's the intelligible world, the physical world, and the human being in a kind of descending order. The human being, however, is the microcosm of creation, and thus, at least in his spiritual or noetic intellectual reality, is exalted above other inhabitants of the cosmos, including even lesser deities and gods. This idea of the human being as a microcosm of the larger macrocosm of the universe or divine world is a theme that will recur continuously in history and even outside of Hermeticism as well. Aside from this, the system also includes various planetary spheres, daimons, and divinities fitting for a late antique philosophical environment. But even though they seem to divide the world into a hierarchy of sorts, this entire cosmos is intimately interconnected and united in sympathia. Everything in the world is connected and interacts, in other words. This is an idea that is probably taken from the Stoics. Indeed, the Hermetists present a monistic picture of reality, where everything is a divine unity. In the words of the scholar Garth Fowden, quote, Thus everything is part of God, and God is in everything, his creative activity continuing unceasingly. All things are one, and the pleroma of being is indestructible. Despite this, the human being is especially exalted as having a divine spark, or of, in a sense, being divine in nature, or at least more so than other things. The soul of the human being can ascend through this hierarchy of being to reach communion with the divine nous and with God himself. It is with this that the philosophical Hermetica is primarily concerned. The texts were, again, most likely part of an initiatory spiritual practice that aimed to purify the soul of impurity, to shed attachment and connection to the body and the world of matter, and to ascend to become unified and assimilated into the one God, so that the person himself becomes divine. It seems that the Hermetic practices included a kind of asceticism, but not to any extreme degree. We don't find the kind of world-neglecting and negative attitudes of the Gnostics, for example, in these texts. Well, actually, sometimes we do. Uh, 
it's complicated. Indeed, many scholars have pointed out, and if you read the text, you will probably see yourself, that the texts aren't always that consistent in its expressions. Sometimes the material world, the physical world, is seen as a beautiful manifestation or expression of God or of, and of divinity, a world that is worthy of being admired and of being studied. And then in other texts, the world is seen as a negative prison that is to be escaped entirely. For example, in the Asclepius, or Perfect Discourse, sex, the sexual act, is praised as a great pleasure and a mirroring of the creative act of God, and in parts of the corpus, the text suggests that one should definitely have children. For example, quote, Prudent people therefore regard the making of children as a duty in life to be taken most seriously and greatly revered. And should any human being pass away childless, they see it as the worst misfortune and irreverence. But in other treatises of the corpus, we are presented with the opposite image, with sex being considered a great curse. Similarly, the vision of reality seems to change across treatises as well. In some sections, we are presented with a monistic philosophy, with all of reality being one and God being identified with the all. The physical world is thus a beautiful manifestation of this God. Quote, For there is nothing in all the cosmos that he is not. He is himself the things that are and those that are not. Those that are he has made visible, those that are not he holds within him. This is the God who is greater than any name. This is the God invisible and entirely visible. This God who is evident to the eyes may be seen in the mind. He is bodiless and many-bodied, or rather, he is all-bodied. There is nothing that he is not, for he also is all that is. And this is why he has all names, because they are of one Father, and this is why he has no name, because he is Father of them all. But on the other hand, again, in other treatises or sections, the picture is a lot more dualistic, with the world being seen as the opposite of God, and as a kind of curse or a kind of prison that is to be escaped. So what's up with these paradoxical statements? Scholars previously, and some today, have argued that because of these great contradictions in the text, this must mean that the different treatises of the text were probably written by different groups altogether, so different people with different philosophical outlooks, and they were only sort of grouped together into a single corpus um, at a later date. However, many today have taken a different route in interpreting these texts and the seemingly paradoxical statements within them. The scholar Garth Fowden argues that this diversity of perspectives is not the result of different outlooks philosophically, but instead represent the gradual development and ascent of the spiritual initiate. In other words, some of the treatises are meant for a person in the early stages of spiritual development and present one view of reality and the world, while others, like the heavily abstract Poyomandres, are aimed at more advanced students who have reached a higher state of purification. Because indeed, the Hermetists were concerned with two different kinds of knowledge, what they called episteme and gnosis. The former category, episteme, is the product of reason and consists of all forms of exterior or conceptual knowledge of things graspable to the mind. The latter, gnosis, is the product of a different kind of understanding, a direct, ineffable, non-conceptual experience of the truth through spiritual insight. And while gnosis of God and one's own true nature is clearly the goal for the hermetist, episteme, or knowledge of the world, is also very important. 
To know God, we must first know creation through studying it. As the corpus itself puts it, quote, Gnosis is the goal of episteme. Or in the Stobian fragments, quote, Without philosophy, it is impossible to be perfectly pious. He who learns of what nature things are, and how they are ordered, and by whom, and to what end, will be thankful for all things to the Creator, and to a good father, a kindly foster, and a faithful guardian. He who is thankful will be a pious man, and the pious man will know where and what truth is, and through this knowledge will become still more pious. This is why the beauty and nobility of the physical world is emphasized in many of the treatises. This perspective is an important step on the way. However, once the practitioner reaches a higher stage of development and ideally of gnosis, he can transcend this perspective as he sheds his connection to the world of matter and form. And when the soul ascends enough to reach perfect gnosis, he will be reborn. Not in a physical sense, of course, but in a spiritual sense. He will become one with the nous, the divine mind, and with God himself, transforming his soul into a divine status. This is just a simplified walkthrough of the contents of the Philosophical Hermetica, but it gives you a pretty good idea of some recurring themes and features that it is known for and which would become so influential in later times in different religious and philosophical currents. Indeed, while we know very little about the actual people who wrote the Hermetica, the, these texts, um, and nothing of their so-called movement survives today, Still, the texts themselves had incredible staying power across history and across a diverse array of different uh, circumstances and contexts and religious and, and philosophical environments. Hermes was a powerful name and figure who continued to be revered in different forms in different religions, but always with a strong association to the occult, to astrology and alchemy. Some of the early church fathers of Christianity, like Clement of Alexandria, seems to have read the text and considered Hermes a great teacher of the world's wisdoms. It also became important for later philosophers like the late Platonist Iamblichus and Proclus, and for alchemists like Zosimos of Panopolis. After the arrival of Islam and the Islamicate civilization, Hermes and Hermeticism, or Hermetism continued to influence religious and philosophical currents in this context as well. Hermes was often identified with the Quranic prophet Idris and the biblical Enoch, and thus seen as one of the great messengers of God and originator of hidden wisdoms. From early philosophers like Al-Kindi and Abu Mashar in Baghdad, to the world of medieval Andalusia and Sufi philosophers like Ibn Sabain and Al-Shushtari, Hermes and the teachings associated with him continue to be very influential in the Islamic world. In the great Arabic Sufi poet Al-Shushtari's poem, known as the Qasayda Nuniya, in other words, the ode rhyming in the letter Nun, he lists some of his great spiritual teachers and forebearers, and includes names like Plato, Aristotle, and, indeed, Hermes. Which text in particular these people had access to, and thus which ideas they picked up and from where is hard to say for sure, but Hermeticism got a serious shot in the arm in Europe in the 15th century when the Corpus Hermeticum was rediscovered and translated for the first time into Latin by Marsilio Ficino. Hermes and the Hermetica would be seen, both in later Europe and earlier in the medieval Islamic world, as very ancient and as the originator of teachings inherited by people like Moses and the great prophets as well as philosophers of history. 
the Hermetica had an enormous impact on the world of Western esotericism from that point and even to this very day. Hermeticism today can be a lot of different things. It is often very loosely connected to any general esoteric wisdom or occult knowledge, but it all stems back to the ancient collection of texts um, that is attributed to the figure of Hermes Trismegistus. Today we know that the text most likely didn't originate with Hermes himself and that the stories about him and his role in history of philosophy and religion is probably mythical, but that doesn't change the fact that the Hermetic literature has been immensely influential and played a central role in the history of esotericism, occultism, as well as religion, mysticism and philosophy in general. Much of what we associate with occult sciences, magic, astrology and alchemy is very strongly connected to the Hermetic tradition. Hermes Trismegistus, the Toth of Egyptian religion, continues to exert his mystical influence upon us. The vast body of literature attributed to him serves as one of the treasures of intellectual history and as a part of our collective heritage that isn't always given its due, even though it has played such a major role. I'll see you next time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.